see, where Moses and the Israelites praised this God who saved them from Egypt for being perfect in all of his ways and mighty and just in all of his dealings. The Israelites look back at the Red Sea, the object of their deliverance and Egypt's judgment, and they praise God. They sing a song to say that God is a mighty judge and a mighty savior. And that's the main idea that I want you to take home today. God is a mighty judge and a mighty savior. So, what do you do with that information? Don't run from him. God is a mighty judge and a mighty savior, so don't run from him. And before we dive in, I want you to notice one thing before we read the passage. This is a song. So when Moses and the Israelites saw God display his greatness before them in the Red Sea, they sang a song of praise. Today, we live in a fast-paced, media-saturated world, and it's really easy to read the Bible and hear about this incredible, infinite, eternal, almighty, world-ruling, Satan-crushing, sin-healing, sinner-saving God, and then walk away and say, yeah, that's pretty neat, and then we go back to looking at our phones. Friends, we must never have an encounter with this amazing God that does not drive us to our knees in worship and drive us to our feet in endless praise. This God is beautiful. Let his greatness capture your attention and your imagination this morning as we praise him along with Moses and the Israelites. So before we read this passage, I'm going to pray specifically that God would amaze us with his power and his beauty. I want this amazement to absolutely overwhelm you today so that you put down your phone, stop binging shows every night because you see that this God is more satisfying than anything this world has to offer. I want this amazement to absolutely overwhelm you today so that you would know that this God is worthy of your entire life, that you would stop playing church and just showing up every Sunday, but that you would start living for his glory among the nations and knowing that living for that is better than living for your career or living for a platform or living for power or anything else that you might get in this world. So let's pray, asking God to amaze us. Then we're going to read this glorious song, and then we're going to jump into studying it together. God, you are glorious. Would you cause your glory to shine through today? Would you leave every one of us completely amazed at your wonders and your glory? God, would we leave here today completely forsaking the folly of sin because we see it for what it is as foolishness and death? God, would you amaze us with your glory so that we don't want to live for anything else but you because you're glorious and you're wonderful. Please, God, would you amaze us today at the wonders of who you are? It's for your name we pray. Amen. Exodus 15, the song of the sea. Then Moses and the people of Israel sang this song to the Lord, saying, I will sing to the Lord. 
for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him. My Father's God, and I will exalt him. The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. Pharaoh's chariots and his hosts he has cast into the sea, and his chosen officers were sunk into the Red Sea. The floods covered them. They went down into the depths like a stone. Your right hand, O Lord, glorious in power, your right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemy. In the greatness of your majesty, you overthrow your adversaries. You send out your fury. It consumes them like stubble. At the blast of your nostrils, the waters piled up. The floods stood up in a heap. The deeps congealed in the heart of the sea. The enemy said, I will pursue. I will overtake. I will divide the spoil. My desire shall have its fill of them. I will draw my sword. My hand shall destroy them. You blew with your wind. The sea covered them. They sank like lead in the mighty waters. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? You stretched out your right hand. The earth swallowed them. You have led in your steadfast love the people whom you have redeemed. You have guided them by your strength to your holy abode. The peoples have heard, they tremble. Pangs have seized the inhabitants of Philistia. Now are the chiefs of Edom dismayed. Trembling seizes the leaders of Moab. All the inhabitants of Canaan have melted away. Terror and dread fall upon them because of the greatness of your arm. They are still as a stone till your people, O Lord, pass by. Till the people pass by whom you have purchased. You will bring them in and plant them on your own mountain. The place, O Lord, which you have made for your abode. The sanctuary, O Lord, which your hands have established. The Lord will reign forever and ever. Amen. The best songs, the best poems, all have a very careful structure. There is no word, nor there is no grouping of words that has not been carefully thought out. This song is no different. It's made up of seven stanzas, the first six of which come in pairs, that alternate between praising God for who he is and praising God for what he's done. And then they come to a climax with a seventh stanza where the Israelites celebrate being with their God forever. So we're going to take a look at each of these pairs of stanzas together and then end our time looking at that seventh final climactic stanza. And as we walk through the song, I want you to see four praiseworthy truths about our God. And each of these will illuminate a different way that God is a mighty judge and a mighty savior. And what I want you to take away from each of those points is that we cannot run from this God. God is a mighty judge and a mighty savior, so don't run from him. And those four truths are God is a promise keeper, 
God is powerful, God is planetary, and God is present with his people. God is a mighty judge and a mighty savior, so don't run from him. How is he a mighty judge and a mighty savior? First, he's a promise keeper. He is a covenant-keeping God. He is a friend who enters into relationship with his people. He makes promises to his people, and he keeps them. So the song starts out praising God for who he is. Verse 1, I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. And the idea here isn't so much praising the glory of God's triumph, but focusing on the glory of God, the triumph for himself. He is highly exalted. He has all knowledge. He has all power. He is all present. He has no need that we can meet. He has no shortcomings that we can help. He is perfect in all of his ways. He is completely incomparable. He is the glorious creator. We are the tiny creation. You and I are limited, right? We don't know everything. And what we do know, we forget. We can't do everything. And what we can do, we mess up. We can't be everywhere. And to get anywhere takes a lot of time and energy. We do not always triumph gloriously. But our God always triumphs gloriously because unlike us, he is perfect and complete in power and glory. He is so infinitely glorious that nothing can compare to who he is and nothing can stop him from accomplishing his purposes. So the song continues by showing off the great, incomparable strength and glory of God, the horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. Pharaoh's mighty army that the Israelites just saw crushed under the weight of the Red Sea as if they were a bunch of ants is made up of horses and riders and chariots. This was about as stacked as an army could be at this time. Egypt is not just some random country that God decided to squash. They are an international superpower. And so saying the horse and the rider he has thrown into the sea might be like saying the Marine Corps and the Navy SEALs, he's completely decimated. He's wiped them out. They're gone. They're done. So God is completely powerful. He is matchless in his strength. He is undefeated and undefeatable. God is a mighty judge. But remember, God's judgment is not good news if God isn't good. And that's where the song turns next. God is a mighty judge and a mighty savior. So don't run from him. Look at verse 2. The Lord is my strength and my song. And he has become my salvation. This is my God and I will praise him. My father's God and I will exalt him. The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. The Lord isn't just a judge of his enemies. He is also the savior of his people. He is their strength and their song and their salvation. He upholds them. He protects them. He gives them life. He gives them joy. And Moses and the Israelites praise God saying, this is my God. Meaning that he has thrown his lot in with his 
people. They are his people. They are his family and he is theirs. They're closely connected so as to be inseparable. He will never leave them because he's entered into covenant with them. God's people will never be subject to God's judgment. So friends, don't run from him. When you're caught in sin and shame, run to him, confessing your sin, because he is your God. Psalm 51.17 says that he will not despise or cast out a broken and contrite heart. Don't run from him. But the Israelites don't just praise God as my God. They go on to praise him as my father's God. And this is where we see God as a promise keeper. This doesn't just mean when they say my father's God that they're following in the religious footsteps of their biological father. No, this is talking about their spiritual father, Father Abraham. This is the God who made promises to Abraham and is keeping them. The reason that God brought the Israelites out of the Red Sea, out of Egypt, and into the land is because he made a promise to Abraham, and God always keeps his promises. If you don't know the story, in the first book of the Bible, the book of Genesis, God chose one man who was practically a pagan at that point, and God said to him, I have chosen you. I'm going to make you a great nation. I'm going to save your people. I'm going to give you a great land, and all the nations of the earth will be blessed by your offspring. And that was Abraham. And now throughout the book of Exodus and throughout the rest of the Bible, God is keeping the promises that he made to Abraham. That's the foundation that God is building off of. He saved a people by grace. He made promises to them. And then he's keeping those promises. And he always does. This has come up again and again in the book of of Exodus. The reason that God is a mighty judge of Egypt and a mighty savior of Israel is because he is keeping his promises to Abraham. Why did God have compassion on the suffering, grumbling Israelites under the oppressive hand of Egypt? Exodus 2.24 tells us it's because of his promises to Abraham. Why is God giving them the land? Exodus 6.8 says, I will bring you into the land that I swore to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I give it to you for a possession. I am the Lord. And he gets to the same point in verse 3, when Moses and the Israelites praise him, saying, the Lord is his name. Whenever you see Lord in all caps in your Bible like that, that's referring to the covenant name of God, a name that was so holy and so sacred that, that the Hebrews wouldn't even say it. And when they spoke the Bible, they just replaced that word with Lord because that name was so holy. And it's also the covenant name of God, the name by which he identifies himself with his people and his promises. In the story of the Exodus, God is a mighty judge and a mighty savior because of his promises to Abraham. And today, God is a mighty judge and a mighty savior because of his promises to us through Christ. 2 Corinthians 1.20, speaking of Christ, says, For all the promises of God find their yes in him, in Jesus Christ. 
That means that the reason this mighty God keeps his promises is on account of Jesus Christ. Why does God keep his promises? Because of Jesus Christ. If it were up to us to keep our end of the bargain, God would have no reason to keep his promises because we always fail. But in the midst of our sinfulness, God is faithful. Jesus Christ was always faithful to God. He always obeyed God. He was always kind to other people. He never sinned or did wrong. He never abused his authority. And at the cross, Jesus Christ showed the supreme way that God is a mighty judge and a mighty savior. Because at the cross, all of God's wrath that is rightly stored up against my sin and your sin and wrongdoing was poured out on Christ. He took the punishment for our sins onto himself. God judged him in our place so that anyone who believes in Christ alone for salvation can be saved. God is a mighty judge and a mighty savior. And then, because Christ had no sin to hold him in the grave, he rose victoriously three days later. The cross perfectly reveals God as a mighty judge because he poured out his right wrath on sin. But it also perfectly reveals God as a mighty savior because he poured that right wrath on, on his own son rather than on us. And that's why God's promises can be true for us. Not because we've earned them, but because Jesus did. He died and he rose again to guarantee those promises. And as long as Jesus is alive, God will always keep his promises. And friends, the Lord Jesus is risen from the dead and he will never die again. So that means that our God is a perfect promise keeper. But these promises are not true for all people. Israel did cross through the Red Sea, but Egypt was crushed. Only those who are in Christ by faith can claim these promises. So don't run from him. Find these promises of forgiveness and life and freedom for yourself today by trusting in Christ. The song continues in verses 4 and 5, where the Israelites move from praising God for who he is to praising God for what he's done. Pharaoh's chariots and his host he cast into the sea, and his chosen officers were sunk in the Red Sea, the floods covered them. They went down into the depths like a stone. God is a mighty judge and a mighty savior. We see it in the way that he keeps his promises. And number two, God is powerful. God is a mighty warrior. And his people praise him for his infinite power and his conquering justice. We see this in verses 6 through 10. The section follows the same format as the previous one. God is praised for who he is, glorious in power, and then he's praised for what he has done, showing his power by judging Pharaoh. Verse 6, Your right hand, O Lord, glorious in power, your right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemy. They are completely shattered. Have you ever broken a glass in the kitchen and you've tried to put it back together? That's a jigsaw puzzle that is beyond you because that glass is broken into a million tiny pieces. There is nothing left to repair. 
Our Lord is glorious in power, and none of his enemies stand a chance. And that's what he proved at the Red Sea. Verse 7. In the greatness of your majesty, you overthrow your adversaries. You send out your fury, it consumes them like stubble. Have you ever sat around a campfire and you've pulled some grass off the ground and you've tossed it in? Show of hands, how many of you have found that grass in the ashes the next day? None of us. The grass just shriveled up immediately. It was gone without a trace. It was consumed by the ashes. And that's how God is with his enemies. They are completely consumed. This is my favorite one. Verse 8. At the blast of your nostrils, the waters piled up. The floods stood in a heap. The deeps congealed in the heart of the sea. So this is one of the most stunning images in all of Scripture to me. How did God part the Red Sea? With a blast from his nostrils, this sea split apart and it stood still and the Israelites crossed through. (laughs) That's astounding. And so Egypt sees, well, the seas are parted and they don't appear to be moving. And so what did they do? Verse 9, the enemy said, I will pursue, I will overtake, I will divide the spoil. My desire shall have its fill of them. I will draw my sword, my hand shall destroy them. You blew with your wind, the sea covered them. They sank like lead in mighty waters. Egypt, in verse 9, is so presumptuous, making plans about conquering, and they're deciding what they're going to do with Israel's treasure. And God says, no, 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 that treasure is not for you. And he blows again, and the seas crush them. As easily as he parted the Red Sea, he sent it tumbling back down over the Egyptians. Our God is in complete control of all of his creation because unlike Egypt and unlike us, he never sets out on any errand that he does not perfectly accomplish because he is perfect in all of his ways. And God is not fighting against creation, trying to mold it and bend it to make it do his will. He has all of creation at his beck and call so that all it takes is the lifting of a finger or the snorting of a breath to to bend it to his will and to make it accomplish his purposes. This is one way that the story of the Bible is absolutely unique from any other creation story. Every other creation story deals with gods who are wrestling against this, create, this pre-creation chaos, trying to mold it and fight it and subdue it. But our God simply speaks creation into being, and then with a word, he speaks creation to obey his command. Friends, this God is mighty. Will you stand and fear him? And this powerful God is a powerful judge and a powerful savior. So don't run from him. As a mighty judge, God is powerful. You cannot avoid his judgment. God is at war with you, and there is no escape in your own righteousness. You can never be strong enough or smart enough to avoid God's judgment. He will catch up with you. The God who parted the Red Seas with a blast from his nostrils will win the day. You can never be good enough to assuage God's judgment. 
There is no religious activity or moral action that you can do that will make you good enough in God's sight to spare you from the wrath to come. You can never avoid or assuage this great judgment. Your only hope is to flee to Christ, admitting that you are sinful through and through, and you have no good to offer God on your own. Believing that Christ really is, he really is all that you need to be saved. Believing that God really did raise him from the dead. Believing that he really is alive and reigning today. So come to Christ today. Leave your indifference at the door. Repent of your sins and believe in his almighty grace. God is a mighty judge, but he is also a mighty savior. So don't run from him. The Israelites crossed through the Red Sea without a problem, not because of their military cunning, but because of the power of their God. And God shows this same mighty salvation to us today in the worst of our suffering and in the worst of our sin. This powerful God is with you in the worst of your suffering. You have no need that God cannot meet. He is powerful. And he who saved you will keep you to the end. So Christian, in the worst of your suffering, no matter what you're going through, our God knows and he hears and he cares, so run to him. He has never left you and he will never leave you. Trust him. Trust him. Trust him. The powerful God is with you in the worst of your suffering and he is with you in the worst of your sin. If you are not a Christian, you are identified by your sin. Your sin is how God views you. It's core to who you are and God is at war with you. He responds to your sin with mighty judgment. But if you are a Christian... You are no longer identified by your sin. You're identified by Christ. When Christ took your sins on the cross, he gave you his perfect righteousness. So when God looks at you, he sees nothing but the perfect, spotless, blameless, kind, loving righteousness of Christ. So if you are a Christian, if you are in Christ you are no longer defined or identified by your sin, no matter how heinous it is. So God is at war with your sin, but he is not at war with you, brothers and sisters. Your sin is not an identity in you that God is opposed to. It is a foreign object that he is working to destroy. God is at work to save you from your sin by removing it from your life because he loves you. And he doesn't want you to leave you in your sin because he knows that it's not good for you. There's a phenomenal book that came out last year called Gentle and Lowly. And here's how the author of that book puts it. If you are a part of Christ's own body, your sins evoke his deepest heart his compassion and pity. He takes part with you. That is, he's on your side. He sides with you against your sin, not against you because of your sin. He hates sin, but he loves you. 
We understand this when we consider the hatred a father has against a terrible disease afflicting his child. The father hates the disease while loving the child. Indeed, at some level, the presence of the disease draws out his heart to his child all the more. Friends, the God who saved Israel from the Red Sea, the God who saved you from your sins at the expense of his own son's blood, is not against you. And he never will be. Because you are one with his son, you don't have to run from him because of your sin. If you are a Christian, running from God because of the shame of sin is like a cancer patient running away from radiation. Yes, it will be painful, but you will be saved. And if you're running away from God, you're running away from the only thing that can help you. Only God can save you from your sin today and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. So run to him today and be saved. And what that looks like practically is not isolating yourself from our church family in the midst of serious sin. Everyone in this church is a sinner, so there will be no judgment from us. But there will be help and mercy and love. Don't isolate yourself under the shame of sin. Run to God and run to his people. God is a mighty judge and a mighty savior. He shows his mighty judgment and his mighty saving because he is a promise keeper, because he is powerful. And number three, God is planetary. God is praised because he is the mighty judge and the mighty savior of all nations. As we saw in the plagues, a major theme of the book of Exodus is God declaring war on the so-called gods of Egypt. By delivering his people out of Egypt, God is proving that the so-called gods of Egypt are no gods at all. And he's proving also that he himself is no tribal deity for Israel, but that he is the God, the Lord, who rules and reigns over all nations. So in verses 11 and 12, Moses and the Israelites compare the Lord to all the gods of the nations. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? You stretched out your right hand, the earth swallowed them. What's the difference between our God and the gods of Egypt? The Lord is majestic in holiness. He is infinitely pure and uncreated, while the so-called gods of Egypt are created things invented by men. The Lord is awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders, while the so-called gods of Egypt have failed time and time again to save their people, so that Pharaoh and his mighty army have been swallowed by the sea. But this is just the beginning of the story. God is not just the mighty judge of Egypt and the mighty savior of his people. He is the God of all nations. 
Read verses 13 through 16 with me. And listen as we read this to the names of other nations and how those nations are feeling right now after hearing news about the, the mighty army of Egypt being crushed by the Red Sea. Verses 13 to 16. You have led in your steadfast love the people whom you have redeemed. You have guided them by your strength to your holy abode. The peoples, with an S, as in other people groups, as in other nations, the peoples have heard. They tremble. Pangs have seized the inhabitants of Philistia. Now are the chiefs of Edom dismayed. Trembling seizes the leaders of Moab. All the inhabitants of Canaan have melted away. Terror and dread fall upon them because of the greatness of your arm. They are still as a stone till your people, O Lord, pass by. Till the people pass by whom you have purchased. The journey of the Israelites wasn't done yet. God had delivered them out of Egypt but he wasn't done fulfilling his promises to Abraham. God wasn't just going to deliver them out of Egypt. He was going to deliver them into the promised land. And what these verses are saying is, once the inhabitants of the land, the Philistines, the Edomites, the Moabites, the Canaanites, once they hear about what this God had done to Egypt, they're going to be very afraid of the God of Israel. God is a mighty judge, and no person and no nation falls outside of his jurisdiction. He is the great king of all the earth, or he is a planetary God. The theologian Abraham Kuyper said, There is not one square inch of this planet over which Christ does not cry out, Mine. He is a planetary God. And the passage describes the Israelites as the people that God has redeemed and the people that he has purchased. These concepts are closely related because to redeem someone means to pay or purchase the ransom to release them from enslavement or captivity. And the good news that our God is a planetary God who rules over all nations gets even better with the coming of Christ. Because we see that God is not just a mighty judge of the nations. He is their mighty Savior as well. In Revelation 5.9, heavenly creatures praise Christ, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals. They're praising Christ, saying, For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people. Sound familiar? We just read that in Exodus 15. So Christ, by his blood, ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. God has redeemed people, not just out of Israel, but from every tribe, tongue, and nation. Today, there are thousands of tribes and tongues and nations where the good news of Christ is not known because it has never been shared. People in those places do not know that Christ is a mighty judge and a mighty savior because they've never heard of him. Christ purchased people for God from those tribes and tongues and nations, but they will not be his until Christians like us take this good news to them. 
The God that we are praising in Exodus 15 is more worthy of your life than any cause you could give it to. And so some of you are going to be called to lay down your life to bring that good news that Christ saves to all nations. Some of you will be called that way. Some of you already have. But all of us are called to pray. I want to encourage you to start praying for unreached people like this today. There's an app called the Unreached of the Day app. And every day they'll send you a notification with a different unreached people to pray for. People who have never heard the good news of Christ. And if you're interested in learning more about Jesus Christ as the mighty judge and mighty savior of all nations and finding your role in making that good news known to the ends of the earth, we're going to be starting a cross-cultural missions cohort this fall to do just that. And so come talk to me today if you're interested in being a part of that. God is a mighty judge and a mighty savior, so don't run from him. He shows his mighty judgment and his mighty saving because he is a promise keeper, because he is powerful, because he is planetary, and finally, God is present with his people. Baked into the conclusion of this song is the glorious promise that God will dwell with his chosen people forever. Here's how the song ends, verses 17 and 18. You will bring them in and plant them on your mountain. The place, O Lord, which you have made for your abode. The sanctuary, O Lord, which your hands have established. The Lord will reign forever and ever. This song is looking forward to a day when God's people live on a mountain and God himself dwells on that mountain as well. It is his abode. It is his sanctuary. It is his home. That sounds pretty great, right? And this is a major theme in the book of Exodus, and it becomes a major theme throughout the rest of Scripture as well. So first of all, the entire reason that Moses and the Israelites are being brought out of Egypt is not ultimately so that they can have the promised land, but so that they can be with God. Look at Exodus 5.1. This is the first time Moses and Aaron brought their demands to Pharaoh. And they say, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Let my people go, that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. Moses was pointing to the fact that Israel was not ultimately after the promised land, but was ultimately leaving Egypt to be with their God. Once Moses and the Israelites make it out of Egypt, as we'll see in coming weeks, they're going to be brought to Mount Sinai. And maybe the Israelites were wondering as they gathered around Mount Sinai, is this the mountain we sang about in Exodus 15? Is this where we will dwell with God forever? But there's a problem. Because the Israelites can't even get near that mountain. In Exodus 19.12, Moses gives the people instructions. While he goes up the mountain, the people can't even get near the mountain. Exodus 19.12 says, And you shall set limits for the people all around, saying, Take care not to go up into the mountain or to touch the edge of it. Whoever touches that mountain shall be put to death. So this is not the mountain where God will dwell with his people forever. The Israelites' sins keep them from even approaching this holy God on this mountain. 
But from that mountain, God instructs the Israelites to build the tabernacle, a temporary dwelling place where God will dwell with them, but things still aren't quite right. Because just like Mount Sinai, the Israelites can't go into the tabernacle. And in fact, the book of Exodus ends with this big problem. Not even Moses can enter the tabernacle. God is so holy, perfectly distinct from all impurities, that unholy sinners like Moses and the Israelites and me and you cannot go near him without receiving the right penalty for our sin. Eventually, God does bring the people into the land, and they even build a temple for Mount God on Mount Zion in Jerusalem. And again, the people are wondering, is this the mountain we sang about? Is this where God will dwell with us forever? And knowing that their present God is also a planetary God, the Israelites even start to look forward to a day when all nations will ascend Mount Zion to be with this God. Micah chapter 4 says, It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains, and it shall be lifted up above the hills, and peoples shall flow to it, and many nations shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord. But there's still the same problem. Because of their sins and impurities, the Israelites aren't allowed to get into the holiest parts of the temple. And the non-Israelites can't even go past the outermost room. But that's not God's plan for forever. He wants to dwell with his people, not just near them. And that's why Jesus Christ came. He came and he walked through that very temple built on Mount Zion. And later on, on Mount Zion, he was condemned by Jewish and Roman authorities to die. Later on, not far from that mountain temple, Jesus Christ was crucified. He died an excruciating, painful, shameful, humiliating death to pay for the sins that separate us from God. He was buried not far from that mountain temple. And then he rose again, not far from that mountain temple. Jesus Christ ascended into heaven. He is not present here on the earth anymore, but he sent God the Holy Spirit to dwell within us as a down payment for when we will dwell with our triune God forever. One day he is coming back, and at that time he will finally, completely fulfill his work as a mighty judge and a mighty savior. He will judge the living and the dead, and he will bring his people from every tribe, tongue, and nation to dwell in the new Jerusalem on Mount Zion. God is going to recreate this earth, and we are going to live here forever. This is how the story of the Bible draws to a close in Revelation 21, 1 through 4. God dwelling with his people forever on a glorious mountain. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. 
and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. This is our hope. God dwelling with his people on a mountain forever. He will wipe away every tear. And notice that Revelation 21 says that there will be no sea in the new Jerusalem. This does not mean that there are not large bodies of water. It means that the waters of judgment, the waters that crushed Pharaoh and his army, are no longer needed. Because God's judgment is finally fully completed forever. There is no more need for the waters of judgment, and God will dwell with his people forever. God is a mighty judge and a mighty savior, so don't run from him. As your judge, he is present. You cannot escape from his judgment unless you flee to his son, so do that today. If you want to learn more about that, come talk to me at the back of the room today. And as a mighty savior, he is present. He is your home. So don't run from him. Run to him in faith, confessing your sins and looking forward to the day that every tear caused by suffering and sin will be wiped away. Let's pray together. God, we praise you as the mighty judge and mighty savior of all the earth. I pray that you would open our eyes now to behold your wonders. That we would, we would not be, remain indifferent, but that we would leave our sins here and that we would run hard after you. God, I thank you. You have been so good and so kind to us to give us the gift of your word. And I pray, God, that you would cause your word to to spring up and bear much fruit in our lives. God, you are a mighty judge and a mighty savior. Thank you for keeping your promises. Thank you for revealing your power to us. Thank you for ruling over all the earth. Thank you for the promise that one day you will be present with your people perfectly. God, you are perfect in all of your ways. I pray that we would stand amazed at who you are. And it's for your name we pray. Amen.